Today's Bible reading is from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through to 11. Peace and hope. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Friends, uh, you probably noticed that's a brilliant passage of scripture, isn't it? If you needed some hope this morning, here it is. No, I, um, I was reading about a, a marvellous thing, <coughs> excuse me, thing that took place in Major League Baseball in 1995. And uh, Max Licata talks about this in his book, In the Group of Grace. And it said, for a few weeks during the spring of 1995, professional baseball was a different game. The million-dollar arms were at home. The Cadillac bats were in the rack. The contracted players were negotiating for more money. The owners determined to start the season threw open the gates to almost anybody who knew how to scoop a grounder or run out a bunt. So these weren't minor leaguers. The minor leagues were also on strike, he says. These were fellows who went from coaching Little League one week to wearing a Red Sox uniform the next. The games weren't fancy, he says. Mind you, line drives rarely reached the outfield. One manager said his pitchers threw the ball so slowly that the radar gun couldn't clock them. A fan could shell a dozen peanuts in the time it took to relay a throw through the outfield. But did those players have fun, he writes. The diamond was studded with guys who played the game for the love of the game. When a coach said run, they ran. When he needed a volunteer to shag flies, a dozen hands went up. They arrived before the park was open, greasing their gloves and cleaning their cleats. When it was time to go home, they stilled, or they stayed around until the grounds crew ran them off. They thanked the attendants for washing their uniforms. They thanked the caterers for the food. They thanked the fans for paying $1 to watch. 
The line of players willing to sign autographs was longer than the line of fans wanting them. Now, these guys didn't see themselves as a blessing to baseball, but baseball as a blessing to them. They didn't expect luxury. They were surprised by it. They didn't demand more playtime. They were thrilled to play at all. It was baseball again. So in Cincinnati, the general manager stepped out onto the field and applauded the fans for coming out. The Phillies gave away free hot dogs and sodas. In the trade of the year, the Cleveland Indians gave five players to the Cincinnati Reds for free. It wasn't classy. You missed the three-run three, uh, three run homers and the frozen rope pickoffs, whatever they are. But that uh, was forgiven for the pure joy of seeing some guys play who really enjoyed the game. What made them so special? Simple. They were living a life they didn't deserve. These guys didn't make it to the big leagues on skill. They made it on luck. They weren't picked because they were good. They were picked because they were willing. And they knew it. Not one time did you read an article about their replacement players arguing over poor pay. I did read a story about a fellow who offered 100 grand if some owner would sign him. No jockeying for position. No second guessing the management. No strikes. No lockouts or walkouts. Heavens, these guys didn't even complain that their names weren't stitched on the jerseys. Just happy to be on the team. Lakata Rice, shouldn't we be as well? Aren't we a lot like these players? If the first four chapters of Romans tell us anything, they tell us we are living a life we don't deserve. We aren't good enough to get picked, but look at us, suited up and ready to play. We're skillful enough to make the community softball league Oh, sorry, we aren't skillful enough to make the community softball league, but our names are on the greatest roster of history. Do we deserve to be here? No. But would we trade the privilege? Not for the world. For if Paul's proclamation is true, God's grace has placed us on a dream team beyond imagination. Our past is pardoned and our future secure. Unless we forget this unspeakable gift, Paul itemises the blessings that God's grace brings into our world. Lovely story, isn't it? Living the life we don't deserve. And if we look at uh, the passage in front of us, the first thing he tells us in verses 1 is rejoice in your new status, justification by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, friends, we discovered that we are justified freely by God's grace. It's not our work, it's God's grace. In chapter 4, we saw that Abraham, as David spoke last week, is an illustration to show that even in the Old Testament, people were justified by faith and not by obedience to the law. So what it means to be justified means that God credits righteousness to us even while in a sinning state. Because of the death of Christ in our place, God looks at us and declares that we are righteous, we are innocent, we are not guilty, justified. By faith, We have a new status and a new position by grace. But it's important to realise that faith means something, justified by faith. And often people misunderstand faith. They say, oh yeah, I believe that, I've got my ticket to heaven and off they go and live like they did in the past. No. You know, in the 1980s, can I take you back there? Anyone alive back then? We ran an outreach event in Maroubra. We had the English evangelist, J. John. Some of you will have heard him now. He was this early days of J. John. And John Dixon, an Australian writer and scholar, 
He was in the band In the Silence. So we had J. John and John Dixon speaking at an outreach event and singing. And um, after the message, 70 or 80 people, and J. John is an amazing communicator, a Bible-centered and just this gift that God has given him, and all these 70 or 80 people all came forward. And I'm up the back thinking, oh, I don't know if they've understood any of this or whatever. So I went to some of the young people in my youth group and I said, um, I said to a couple of girls, why did you come forward? Did you put your faith in Jesus? Did you become a believer? I said, no, we came forward because our friends did. And even those who claimed to have some faith really had no idea what it meant to receive Christ and to put their faith in him. And we continue to work with those young people. What is faith? Three aspects of faith. Firstly, intellectual assent. Believing that certain things are true. Jesus is God's son. He died for our sins. He rose again. Secondly, trust. Believing in the promises of God. That they can be trusted and relied upon. But there's another perspective, the third one. We need to act upon that trust. You can intellectually say something is true. You might trust that it will work. But then you have to enter into the relationship with Christ. You have to enter into the promises of God. You have to allow those promises to benefit you. You have to, in a sense, surrender completely to God. That's trust. An analogy by uh, English uh, scholar Alistair McGrath helps us in understanding this. He, uh, he says, consider a bottle of penicillin. Here I have it. I have it here. The famous antibiotic identified by Alexander Fleming. It saved countless individuals who would otherwise have died from various blood poisoning. You've got the bottle of penicillin right here. It's sitting next to you, and you are suffering from blood poisoning. Here it is, there's a penicillin, you have blood poisoning. What are your options? You may accept that this bottle of penicillin exists. Yep, yep, it exists. You may even trust that it can cure your illness. But what do you need next? You need to take the penicillin, right? It's not enough to say, oh, yeah, that's penicillin. Oh, yes, that will work. You then need to take a step of trust and reliance upon and drink the penicillin. Martin Luther said it, uh, it's like a wedding ring. It's like a wedding ring. Faith, pointing a mutual commitment between Christ and the believer. You come together. And friends, a lot of people say, I believe and have never entered into a faith relationship with Christ, have never surrendered their lives completely to him, justified by faith. And what are the results of this justification by faith? The immediate effect of justification, we have peace with God, right? We have peace with God. Since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. No longer enemies with God. You don't have to worry, does God hate you? Is God going to punish you? Is uh, you in trouble with God? No, we have peace with God. Secondly, the continuing effect of justification, we have access into this grace in which we now stand. He said, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand and we rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God. We, when you become followers of Christ, you've entered into the grace. And it's a picture of, uh, someone says, it's being introduced to the presence chamber of a king. In other words, through Christ, we've now entered into the presence of God and we stand in his grace. We're no longer outside of the grace. We've entered into the grace of God. We stand with Christ and God secure. And the ultimate effect of justification is the glory of God. You know, Romans chapter 3 says we fall short of the glory of God. Isn't that right? 
We fall short of the glory of God. We need something. No, he says we have the hope of the glory of God, but one day we will see the glory of God. And secondly, that we'll become like God and we'll be glorified and perfected, no longer battling sin and evil, but now like Jesus. It is the hope of the glory of God. Now notice, uh, to have the hope of the glory of God, it takes us, uh, or takes our relationship with Christ. In uh, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. You need to have Christ, then you have that hope. We are being transformed from one degree of glory to another, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Come to Christ, we have been transformed, and one day we'll be fully glorified. Romans 8.18, we consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. As Christians, we need to be joyful and happy and satisfied because of this relationship with God. Hope, in the Bible, by the way, doesn't imply doubt, but it speaks of confidence and uh, an expectation. The Eastern religions offer no hope with the endless nightmare of reincarnation. You just keep coming back. Atheistic evolutionists have no comfort. You die and that's it. Materialists and pleasure seekers are threatened by death. They don't want to think about it. But we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Let me uh, illustrate how we often use the word hope. If we think we might be sick, and we, as I mentioned, a lot of people who are sick in hospital at the moment, at first we hope that nothing is wrong. We do the test, we hope the test shows there's nothing wrong. When they discover that all is not well, we hope it's not serious. When that hope perishes, we hope that something can be done. If they are told there is no hope, though, that we can tell them there is hope even if death cannot be avoided. Because the hope is centred in the promise of life in the glory after death. I received a message yesterday of someone who is not well in hospital. And they may be now dealing with the message of there's no hope for recovery, but there is the hope of eternal life to come. And so what we pray and what we say in a pastoral situation has now changed. But you see, there's hope. In this hope, there is confidence, there is assurance, there is more to come. So in summary, in the word peace, we look back to the enmity which is now over. In the word grace, we look up to our reconciled Father in whose favour we continue to stand. In the word glory, we look into our final destiny, seeing and reflecting the glory of God. And then thirdly, he says, rejoice in your difficulties. Suffering is the pathway to glory. He says, not only so, but we also glory or rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, we're either strange as Christians or we're mad people. Paul says, glory in your sufferings. Rejoice in your sufferings. Now, that is not how we normally think about life, is it? We don't rejoice. We rejoice in the good things. We rejoice in the healing. We rejoice in success. We rejoice in a good ice cream. We rejoice whatever it happens to be. Rejoice, glory in your sufferings. Now, let me say, we don't rejoice in the sufferings themselves. This is really important. It's not like, well, God, give me cancer. Thank you for the cancer. No, no. It's not the cancer that you're thankful for, you're rejoicing. You're rejoicing in the fact that through that cancer, living in a fallen world, God can do his work. 
to make you more like Jesus. And here I think we're talking more like tribulations and opposition by hostile, the hostile world. But I think we can apply it for all situations. I'm not saying uh, God, to have a martyr complex or become masochist, God give us more pain. No, this is not what he's saying. But he's saying when you're going through opposition, when you're in prison, as Leumbel was, that in the midst of that, see what God is doing to remake you. Suffering produces perseverance. When you go through suffering for Jesus, it deepens your faith. You go deeper in God. Your relationship with God becomes stronger. I remember a Korean Christian once said, when they were under great pressure by the communists, she said, we are like nails. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. The harder you hit us, the deeper you drive us. And friends, I've said before, although I didn't enjoy some of my experience as a teenager in a family that did not support my faith, I can now rejoice in those sufferings because as I face opposition from family and friends and local community and so on, the fact that I had to stand up for Christ and God empowered me produced in me perseverance to keep going in God's work. But more perseverance also produces character. If you haven't been through difficulties, I suggest to you that your Christian depth and your Christian character might be lacking something. I think these days I don't suffer very much at all. And I wonder whether I'm not learning perseverance and my character has not been refined to the image of Jesus. We're running a preaching conference at Morling College the next two days. And a few years ago, we had a fellow come out to the preaching conference called Ajith Fernando from Sri Lanka. And he was speaking on Philippians and, uh, and he told some of his story in Sri Lanka. There's been terrible battles and fights and, and opposition uh, between different groups in Sri Lanka. And he said, sometimes some of our believers would be arrested by the police thinking they were on the wrong side and they'd be thrown into prison a bit like Leumbo. And he said, the, the truth is when we go down to our rivers for a period of time, our rivers were covered in blood, the blood of people. But he said, as I, and he said, I and some others, we would then go and, because we were well known, we would go and speak to the police and the authorities and try and get these people released from prison. He said, what I noticed though, that the people who are suffering and uh, they're learning perseverance, they're becoming more like Jesus in the midst of that, enduring whatever happens. And hearing Ajith Fernando speak about the suffering in Sri Lanka, and by the way, pray for Sri Lanka today, ongoing tensions and uh, political and financial ruin at the moment. It's a terrible devastation. But sometimes, you know, you just sit next to a person like that who just gently shares the truth of the gospel. And when he speaks about what Jesus can offer you, you listen. He doesn't have to be the best preacher. He doesn't have to be the most eloquent communicator. He sits next to you and he says, Andrew, this is what's happening with our people in Sri Lanka. And character produces hope the confidence of the final glory. Suffering, perseverance, character, and hope. Friends, the Bible commentator, Lord Ogilvie, I was reading his, uh, his commentary this week, and he said these words about a really difficult time in his life. He said, this past year, and maybe you'll identify with this, has been the most difficult year of my life. My wife has been through five major surgeries, radiation treatment, and chemotherapy. I'm thankful that I know she's going to make it. During the same year, I suffered the loss of several key staff teammates, 
whose moves were very guided for them, but a source of pressure and uncertainty in my work. Problems which I could have tackled with gusto under normal circumstances seemed to loom in all directions. Discouragement lurked around every corner trying to capture my feelings. Prayer was no longer a contemplative luxury, but the only way to survive. My own intercessions were multiplied by the prayers of others. Friendships were deepened as I was forced to allow people to assure me with words I had preached for years. No day went by without a conversation, a letter or a phone call giving me love and hope. He writes this, the greatest discovery that I have made in the midst of all the difficulties is that, is that I can have joy when I don't feel like it. Artesian joy, he writes. It's a joy that flows from internal pressure. And I guess over the COVID last few years, and it continues, maybe you feel a bit like that. Joy can be found. And then rejoice in the certainty of full and final salvation, verses 5 to 11. And uh, he lists, firstly, that our assurance is grounded in the love of God, verses 5 to 8. How do you know you're going to be with Jesus? Because of God's love. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. You see, just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Sometimes I go to bed thinking about these verses. I don't know about you. I wake up in the morning in these verses. Someone asks me a question, how do I know God loves me? And I go to these verses. How do I know I have hope? I come to these verses. And there's two ways we can be assured of uh, assurance. Number one, subjective grounds, the experiential. God's love in us by the Holy Spirit. And in what he says that, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. Friends, if you are full of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit now dwells within you. And from time to time, you feel this inner peace, this inner sensation going, I'm a child of God. Oh, you know it intellectually, you know from the word, we'll come to that in a moment. But God assures us, God, as the Bible says, he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God in Romans 8, 16. Don't always feel that, but it's experiential. But then there's the objective grounds, historical, the death of Jesus on the cross. He died for the powerless. He died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies. Failures, rebels, enemies, and Jesus died to save us. And as we saw, you put your faith in that finished work of Jesus, you're saved. Subjective, the spirit is in you. Objective, you have historical evidence, and you're saved. Friends, during the Revolutionary War in the United States, uh, there was a faithful preacher of the gospel by the name of Peter Miller. Let me tell you about him. And he lived near a fellow who uh, hated him intensely for his Christian life and testimony. So there's Peter Miller, he's a follower of Jesus, and this other guy hates him. In fact, this man violently opposed him, and ridiculed his followers. One day the unbeliever was found guilty of treason and sentenced to death. Hearing about this, though, Peter Miller set out on foot to intercede for the man's life before George Washington. The general listened to the minister's earnest plea, but told him he didn't feel he should pardon his friend. And Miller said, my friend? No, 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 you don't understand, Mr. Washington. He is not my friend. In fact, he's my worst living enemy. What, said Washington? You have walked 60 miles to save the life of your enemy. That, in my judgment, 
put the matter in a different light. I will grant your request. So Peter Miller, the minister, receives uh, a letter from George Washington which will save the man's life. So with a pardon in hand, Miller hastened to the place where his neighbour was to be executed and arrived just as the prisoner was walking to the scaffold. When a traitor saw Miller, he exclaimed, Old Peter Miller has come here to gain his revenge by watching me hang. He was astonished as he watched the minister step forward out of the crowd and produce the pardon which spared his life. A pardon for his enemy. Friends, Peter Miller performed a noble act, but it's only a shadow of what Christ did, because Christ not only obtained his enemy's pardon, he died to accomplish that. And because of all of that, justification leads to glorification, verses 9 to 11. Since we have been justified by his blood, since this has already taken place, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? In other words, how much more certain then that we won't have to face his judgment? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Friends, we have the assurance of eternal life. And I don't know, for those going back a few years to 1979, I was um, first year at Teachers College, and the evangelist Billy Graham ran a big crusade in Sydney. Anyone go to the 79 or 78, 79? Some of you were there. And, uh, but I remember being on, he was interviewed on the Mike Willisie Current Affairs Program. Mike Willisie is from a Catholic background and um, quite a committed Catholic, as we understand. And somewhere in the interview, Billy Graham mentioned that he was certain that if he died, he would go to be with God. He had eternal security. And Mike Willisie was astounded. He says, how can you be sure of that? Billy Graham said, well, what he was saying was not unusual. It was Plenty of other Christians will say the same thing. It's in the Bible. Whoever believes will have eternal life. It's the promise of God to all who believe in him. But you see, Mike Willis didn't get it. He thought it was about his work, his contribution. But it's all about God's work. Our justification by faith guarantees our final salvation and glorification. We are justified by his blood when we were enemies. How much more will we be saved from God's wrath? God reconciled us to himself when we were his enemies. As friends, we will definitely be saved through his life. Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you also will live. And in verses 2, 9, 10, and 11, we're told to rejoice in God through Jesus. Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Tough sometimes to rejoice when you're having a tough life, when things aren't going well. But when you say that God's at work, we give thanks to him. We are living a life we don't deserve. We are saved, we are reconciled, and we will be glorified. And John Stott has put this lovely summary. If we could have that up on the screen. Yeah, next one, please. Thanks. It's not by Kent Hughes. Kent Hughes just quotes John Stott in his book. Ignore that. He said, we should be the most positive people in the world. We cannot mooch around the place with a dropping hangdog expression. We cannot drag our way through life moaning and groaning. We cannot always be looking on the dark side of everything as negative prophets of doom. No, we exult, we boast, we rejoice in God. Then every part of our life becomes suffused with glory. Christian worship becomes a joyful celebration of God and Christian living a joyful service of God. So come, let's exult in God together. And we're going to do that right now. And uh, 
in the providence of God, Josh picked the song which is going to speak about happiness and celebration and joy as we conclude. I'm going to invite the band up because I'm looking forward to singing this song together.